As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed Balls. A steady as she goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Well, hello and welcome to EMQs, ex-ministers' questions. It's great to be back answering all your fantastic questions. We've had so many again this week and we can't wait to get stuck in. Definitely. I always felt like the questions were a bit of an add-on at the end and we tried to kind of slot them in to the show before. But having a separate time where we can take the time to, to answer them is, is better. I'm really enjoying doing this, but we can only do this if you keep sending your questions in. So please do, whether it's about the past or economics or definitions or politics, cock-ups, conspiracies, how the economy works, whatever – Voice notes, questions. We can only do this if you keep sending them in. And we've had tons this week, so we really appreciate it. And also topics that aren't necessarily the biggest topics in politics, but uh, never so very important. And we can give them proper time and do them justice. I mean, can George ski? Uh, yes. No, no, that, that's the kind of question you might ask. Or <laughs> I've what's it. your favourite novel? Well, talking about important questions, we had a question about a mug which had my face on it, didn't we, which we dealt with a couple of weeks ago. And we got yeah. to the bottom of who this admirer is. Well, yeah, because if you remember, I mean, the mug says gorgeous George on it. There's a pained look on Ed's face if you're only listening to this. Well, no, it's not pained. I was just just didn't believe it really. I mean, I couldn't believe anybody would would have would have such a mug. I assume that there must be some some woman admirer of yours. And uh, if you remember, she said that she was trying to put your side of the story when she was teaching. And I was saying, was that because she believes in it or she just felt obliged? And we asked her to give us more details. And this is what we got back. Hi, Ed and George. Uh, this is at Gibicon, otherwise known as John Gibb, teacher of economics in Sheffield. Uh, sadly, Ed, I- I'm not a woman. I am a man. And gorgeous George got the nickname because, well, it's a way of getting students to remember the Chancellor's name with a surname like yours, Ed. It was a little bit easier, but we've had, you know, spreadsheet Phil, we've had little Rishi, Mark Manbag Carney, got a name as a governor of the Bank of England. So what are the best nicknames in the House of Commons that you could share with us? Love the show and uh, I'll post the mug very soon. 
Take care. So he's a man. That's fine. I'll take my love from wherever I can get it. That's fine. And uh, have you been called Gorgeous George? I mean, look, of all of your nicknames, there's quite a lot. I think to be quite honest, there's quite a lot of names, actually. Yes. Um, have you been called Gorgeous a lot? Not not that I particularly remember. But anyway, I'm very flattered. I'm still flattered despite that explanation. Uh, but anyway, nicknames is good. I'll tell I you, I'll tell you what. About this. I'll tell I'm not sure I can think of any. Can you? Well, I first of all, I'll tell you something just to watch out for. I've noticed that Keir Starmer quite often makes heightest references to Rishi Sunak, i.e. referring to that he's not the tallest guy. That's common. He's, there's quite a sort of, he's playing the little Englander, he's not being the big man. It's, there's lots of little jibes. He it? should rise above it. And I have to say, I remember when we were in opposition to Gordon Brown, quite a few conservatives would deliberately bring in things that would suggest he wasn't of the most even temperament. So you would quite often say, that's a crazy thing to do. What a deranged idea. Or, you know, he's lost his marbles or whatever it happened to be. I remember. And it does, it's quite effective, I'm afraid. It may not be the most yeah. edifying form of politics. I thought I was thinking I remember, of a by the way, any opportunity I could ever find to use the word whiplash in the House of Commons, I always used. I mean, any time. That was the important work I've been doing on trying to reduce insurance I claims against whiplash. If you but, remember, you once had a go at me for getting having some um, traffic infraction. Hmm. And I said, I know, but at least I didn't get whiplash. He's apologised to the lady whose car he crashed into. Why didn't he apologise to the British people? Yeah. If... Uh, if this Chancellor wants to have a discussion about whiplash, Mr Speaker, we can do that any day of the uh, week. <laughs> Let's not go there. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> I'll tell you a nickname that did stick. That actually Tony Blair deployed, I think as a, he meant it as a kind of compliment to Gordon Brown, but we then picked it up, which was clunking fist. <laughs> he said, you wait, Tories, till the big clunking fist turns up. And... Um, we thought that's actually not a great compliment to Gordon Brown, and we would constantly refer to him as the clunking fist. Let's move on. Our next question is from, ooh, a constituent of yours. Hi, Ed and George. I'm Dr. Fari Ahmed. I'm actually a GP in a Wimslow Health Centre, which is at practice in Cheshire, and I do enjoy listening to your podcast. Uh, yesterday evening at our GP practice, we had a lovely elderly gentleman who took really unwell, collapsed in our waiting room. Um, he needed to be admitted urgently. Unfortunately, the ambulance were very delayed to get him here. Three hours later, about eight o'clock in the evening, where there was no sign of an ambulance, two of us doctors then put him in the car and took him and his wife into the hospital. The hospital was rammed, the ambulances were waiting outside, all of the NHS is bursting at the seams and this is having serious life-affecting consequences for all our patients. It looks like we are not funding healthcare like we say we should be. Do we need a really brave politician to start being honest about what the NHS can do and what it can't do instead of leaving patients languishing and sometimes dying, waiting. Well, I know Fari really well and her husband, Amar, is a GP in the same practice and he is still my GP. And they are great doctors and great people. And this is a cry for help from them. They This story about them delivering one of their own patients to A&E hit the news this week, led the BBC News in the Northwest. And I actually asked them because I've had lots of conversations over the last couple of decades with them about what they would do with the NHS, you know, if they were in charge. And by the way, they're not, these are not at all kind of classic, uh, if you're a conservative, 
sort of lefty Trotskyite militant doctors that you know don't support the Conservative government. Uh, these are absolutely not those sorts of people at all. And I asked them, well, I said in response to their question, I said, well, what would you do? And I thought a couple of their answers were really sensible and interesting, rather than just, you know, somehow we've got to find more money for the NHS, which you know, everyone says, but it's, of course, extremely difficult to do in practice in a, beyond the kind of annual increases it gets already. They would put much more of the budget into primary care than secondary care. So they make the point that 95% of appointments in the NHS are in your GP surgery, but only 8% of the budget is delivered through the GPs. They point out that primary care is much more efficient, that doctors are essentially self-employed, small businesses. They only get paid if they you know, are already clearing their costs. So they, they are much more careful spenders of NHS money. They were fans of uh, GP fund holding. In other words, GPs being able to commission more of the operations and they, they would like a sort of GP-led commissioning service. They want to stop these top-down reorganizations. They thought the Lansley reforms were a disaster. So they would urge, if there's a Labour government, no more big reorganizations of the health service. And of course, a big push on public health using some of the incentives and nudge techniques that have been used pretty effectively to try and get people to stop smoking or indeed to cut sugar content in things like uh, Coca-Cola. So they've got lots of really interesting ideas, but it's a GP-led health service rather than what I think we've had really since the late 40s, which is a health service really built around these mega hospitals, which is the big, big hospital and a kind of secondary care-led NHS. Anyway, fascinating topic and, and of course, um, uh, news from the front line there. Really interesting. And I think social care, primary care, Investing in those are the things which take the pressure off the hospitals. But there is also their problem with ambulances not coming is because the ambulances are queuing outside hospitals because there's a lack of beds and capacity. This does go to a wider point, which is that people's impression of the health service this year, pre-election, comes from what they hear from their GP, from nurses, from people who work in the NHS, from people using the NHS. And the thing I've been slightly baffled by is why Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt aren't doing more, spending more, but also acting more, making this more of a profile because they've got to shift the narrative that we just heard from Ferry, or that will be very bad for them in the election. And you don't have to be a militant or a Trotskyite to be worried about the NHS at the moment. You're completely right about that. The thing I thought, though, I was thinking last night how I'd answer this question, and I thought to myself, who is the health secretary? And I realised I wasn't sure if I knew. I mean, I knew Steve Barclay was the health secretary. And I'd forgotten who Victoria Atkins. Well, OK. She's actually a bit of a rising star in the story. Well, that may be, but I've not seen her around much. And that's yeah, but like all a- the cabinet ministers have, I think, to a degree, this problem. There have been so many changes over recent years. Yeah. There's just a real problem trying to establish. Sunak, I would want people to know who my health secretary was and have them out on the airwaves and talking about this all the time and announcements and resources. You know, what I think it, this is a, such a problem it, for them. Isn't Fari also challenging us to say, look, you can't deliver a Rolls-Royce NHS or pretend you're delivering a Rolls-Royce NHS when you're never going to be able to, as a country, afford that? And you have to be honest with people. There are certain things the NHS can't do. And across Europe, not dissimilar societies like us, so we're not talking about the US, there are things like co-payments for certain types of treatments where people chip in. 
often been talk of charging people to attend a GP and they get their money back if they actually turn up rather than just cancel. So, you know, what about those sorts of more radical ideas, which are kind of uh, feel like the kind of third rail? You can't touch them without being electrified politically. It would be radical if we had a cross-party agreement to start investing in social care and make that a proper service with skilled but properly paid people as well. The reason you didn't introduce co-payments is the same reason we didn't introduce co-payments, which is every time you investigate it, you find out that it doesn't actually work. Yeah, but a Labour government did introduce prescription charging, led to Nye Bevan resigning, but nevertheless. And uh, the Thatcher government introduced charges for dental work and opticians. But once you exclude older people and pregnant women and children, then there's actually very few people who are um, paying the the co-payment services. And secondly, the people who would be paying the co-payments particularly men, you want to get them through the door to get them diagnosed and treated so they don't end up delaying and being a big burden on the health service. And I think the problem with the co-payment is it ends up deterring the people who are actually going to end up being much more costly further down the line. So, you know, I'm all for thinking radically, but I also think the NHS is really good and you've got to invest in it. Such a massive topic. We probably don't talk about enough on our political currency podcast. And certainly I agree with you that the government's not talking about it enough at the moment. Right, here's a question from Francesca in California, and it's a properly wonky question. Hello, George and Ed. I'm from California, and I love your podcast, which is as informative as it is witty and entertaining. Would you please explain the fascinating term expansionary fiscal contraction? I remember it from one of your Tuesday duos in Parliament during the coalition. Thank you so much. Well, it was what I was trying to pull off, actually. Yes. <laughs> Francesca, thank you, by the way, for the very nice compliment. She can have a voice note every week. <laughs> Don't you think, we Francesca, like any time you want to send us a question, as long as you proceed it with um, those kind of comments, we'll go for it. You're the economist. You go first. I think that the contrast is Geoffrey Howe and George Osborne. Right. Geoffrey Howe, early 1980s. Inflation's high. Interest rates are high. The pound is high. What Jeffrey Howe does, he really upset the world of economics by doing this. He had a budget, the 1981 budget, in which he was tightening fiscal policy. He was raising taxes and cutting spending. And the consequence of that is it allowed him then to have a big cut in interest rates. And the big cut in interest rates, the fall in the pound, at the right time globally, by the way, unleashed growth. And so the fiscal contraction actually ended up being expansionary because it allowed monetary policy to be loosened and really set off. That's an expansionary fiscal contraction. The challenge you had was that you were doing the fiscal contraction, the higher taxes and the lower spending. You were hoping that sentiment, this is good, sound public finances, that's going to boost the economy. But the problem you had was interest rates were already really low. It was very hard for the Bank of England to do the loosening in monetary policy. And therefore, it was very hard for your fiscal contraction to be expansionary. In fact, it was probably deflationary at the margin in that period. And that's why growth didn't take off in the same way. And actually, growth started to come back when you started to do a bit less contraction and a bit more expansion on your fiscal side. Well, I think there are two versions of of why expansionary fiscal contraction might work. One is that the kind of more, I guess, more ideological version, that if you have too much state spending, it crowds out the private sector and it discourages private investment and so on. I mean, I'm a conservative. I sort of broadly sign up to that, but I'm not sure you know, it would make a big difference year on year. 
I think where I would disagree, and obviously I would disagree, this was my plan. In 2010, when I think there was a real question over whether Britain was going to face a fiscal crisis, as at the time Greece was facing and Ireland was facing and later Spain and other countries faced. And we had a hung parliament as a result of the 2010 election, so people were unsure about the political stability in the country. I think the fact we had a kind of solid plan did create a basis for reassurance for private investment, for people to spend some money, for companies to think about their future. So sometimes, you know, an austerity plan, because it's a plan, can create confidence. Now, if you just have austerity, then you're just shrinking the amount of money you're going into the economy. And if you don't have a plan, then, you know, people aren't are going to hoard their cash and because they're not sure about what's going to happen tomorrow. But, you know, look, we're, we're not going to relitigate, relitigate 2010. But Francesca's question, you know, I think there was the kind of classic economic theory about expansionary fiscal contraction, about crowding out private sector. I think there's a different version of it, which is sometimes you just got to show the country you've got a grip on the finances. But as I said, the third one is when you have a fiscal monetary policy rebalancing and you loosen monetary yeah. and tighten fiscal. And that wasn't available well, for you. Well, Mervyn King what did say at the time, and it caused a lot of irritation for the Labour government when he said it, that as governor of the Bank of England, you know, he did need the government to get a grip on the public finances so he could sustain a loose monetary policy. Yeah, but look, in the end, it, what I'm saying to you is it wasn't very expansionary. I mean, you know, growth was pretty weak 2010, 2011, 2012. And by the time it came back... But it was the, weak across Europe and yeah, indeed in the United States. That's though. true. It was weak everywhere. Next up, we'll be talking about going down coal mines, about Israel-Gaza, and uh, some of the quirky things that happened in the House of Commons. All next. <laughs> their needs to be greener, to have emit less carbon and move to uh, what's called an electric arc process. But that as a result means that quite a few jobs have been lost. And also Britain is losing some key steelmaking capacity, which people say should be a sort of sovereign capability, something that is in this country for national security reasons. But there's a big question, would Labour be any different? There were big closures, things like the Longridge 
car plant closed when there was a Labour government? I think if you go back to Longbridge as the best example, 2005, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown both went down to Longbridge. to the car During ma- the election, didn't during, they? Then they, they went and they met the workers and they talked to the wider community. There was driven by Advantage West Midlands, the big regional development agency, a big plan around skills and the transformation of the, the, the site. What they didn't do was step in and say, we can bail out a private company which is in challenging circumstances. And in the case of Tata, uh, this is more complicated, as you said, because this is about the transition which Labour is championing to a greener way to run industry, to move away from the old ways of doing things. And so it's very hard to just say we're going to put this into reverse or do a U-turn. I think what you would definitely see is much more activism on the ground trying to find a plan to for transformation of the area and for the workforce and for the, the site. But historically, Labour governments know that if you set a precedent for stepping in with public money to bail out a company in challenging circumstances, that becomes very costly and difficult very quickly. You can't you used to be able to hide behind the European Union. You used to say, under EU rules, we can't support individual companies because of state aid rules. But what some people say is a Brexit bonus is that a Labour government could actually give a load of money to Tata to keep Port Talbot open. But I don't think either party in government at the moment would be stepping in to bail out Tata and prevent the change which is happening. It's about how you do it rather than whether it happens. Do you think there's a tension inside Labour movements around the world or social democrat movements between some of their green... You know, they've harnessed a lot of the sort of millennial interest in climate change or preventing climate change. And that's where a lot of these left-wing parties at the moment garner their support. And their sort of traditional industrial base, you know, it would have been the back in the day, of course, the entire Port Talbot workforce probably voted Labour. Probably not the case now. Some of the more nationalist notes that people like Boris Johnson and now more recently parties like Reform Strike are very attractive to these industrial heartlands. That's a sort of problem, isn't it, with the modern left? Well, look, the GMB leader, Gary Smith, has been very articulate in arguing that you need to this manage... the union, the GMB. Yeah, the um, trade union, saying that it needs to be managed in a careful and steady way. And if you try and go too fast, you damage industrial capacity. The reality is, though, whether there was a Labour or Conservative government at the moment, these changes would be happening and you would be dealing with the consequences. And it's, you know, it's not a Labour government which is driving this change. And I don't think a Labour government would be preventing that change. And it's one of those things you have to explain to um, workforces and to to voters. I don't think that Stephen Kinnock, who is a senior shadow minister, and also the local MP, he's not out there saying this must be stopped, because he knows a Labour government wouldn't be able to stop it. Well, I I had personal experience of getting yourself into hot water if you try and support industrial enterprises that are failing. I went down a coal mine, which was actually one of the most interesting visits I did, in Mansfield as Chancellor in 2013, deep coal mine, one of the last deep pits in Britain. And then after I visited, I heard that the company that owned the coal mine was going bust and they were going to close the pit. And we we did provide subsidies to try and keep the pit open. And that only worked for about a year. But I discovered what many chancellors over the 20th century discovered, which is trying to keep alive unprofitable coal mines or indeed steel works doesn't succeed in the end. I went down a coal mine in in Poland for a BBC documentary. I worked an eight-hour shift a mile underground. Did did you do a full shift? I did not do a full shift. But I tell you, it was unbelievably hot and dusty and difficult. I mean, it gave me an appreciation which I just frankly had never had before. 
of what a difficult and dangerous job it was being a coal miner. Incredible. Because the thing is, you have the access to the seam all that way underground can be big and bricked and, you know, like being in a underground car park. But when you actually get to the seam, because the seam is moving as you cut, everything is temporary. You're continually reconstructing to move. It's so hot. It's It's hot, but it's also, I mean, it's because it's temporary, it doesn't feel like a great working environment. It's a nightmare. Um, Such a tough job. Very, very tough job. Great. Our next question is from Phoebe. And she has emailed this in. How do you take a balanced stance on the Israel-Palestine conflict without being antagonistic to either side? It's an incredibly complex and horrific situation, but there appears to be little acceptance for nuance when engaging the topic. How would you suggest navigating this? Good question, Phoebe. Well, this is obviously an incredibly difficult question, and there isn't an answer or else the world would be doing a better job of trying to end the Gaza conflict. I think the reporting, there have been obviously mistakes, like the BBC misreported the uh, strike on the hospital, which was a, turned out to be a Hamas missile or militant missile rather than an Israeli missile. So, you know, there have been mistakes. But to be fair, you know, the BBC are one of the very few organisations reporting out of Gaza. And those reporters are doing an incredibly brave job. So I think we shouldn't sort of beat up on news organisations that are trying to achieve balance in a very, very difficult situation when people's emotions are running so high, both in the Jewish community and in the Palestinian community, and indeed amongst people around the world looking at this tragic situation. I'd make a broader observation, which is I think a lot of people are talking about solutions being imposed essentially on Israel and the Palestinian people. So there's lots of talk of the international community coming up with a plan for a two-state solution again. There's lots of talk of putting together some kind of Palestinian authority that's going to govern Gaza and imposing that on the people who live in Gaza. What both of these solutions ignore are the views of the Israeli and Palestinian people on the ground, people actually living through this trauma. And there is no mood at the moment, as far as I can see, inside Israel for some sort of big compromise and creation of a Palestinian state. There's, you may not like Benjamin Netanyahu and what he's saying, but the idea that he is completely out of sync with the rest of the population of Israel and there are you know, large numbers of Israelis who would support a two-state solution at the moment, I think is fanciful, sadly, because it probably is the long-term answer. And equally on the Hamas side and in Gaza, the idea that all the people in Gaza are kind of ready to be governed by some UN mandate and some imposed Palestinian authority, I think is also probably fanciful, although my knowledge there is frankly less well-developed. So those are two things. I heard Tony Blair make these observations last week. He says, you do need to pay attention to what is being actually said by the Palestinian and Israeli populations. I thought that was a pretty sensible point to make. I mean, it does feel our politics is so polarised these days. But I was uh, looking up this quote by Lloyd George. So we're talking 100 years ago to his Middle East envoy, Sir Ronald Storr, and he was sending him out to the Middle East. And he said, if either side stops complaining, you'll be dismissed. It's very hard to find a way through this in which you're going to get easy consensus. So the polarisation on these issues has been there for a very, very long time. I remember the um, around the time of the, the Equalities Commission report on anti-Semitism in Labour uh, coming out. I was on the radio the day before and I said that um, I didn't think in his core Jeremy Corbyn was anti-Semitic, but he'd undoubtedly said anti-Semitic things. And I got absolutely trounced on social media, on Twitter, from one side saying, 
How dare you say Jeremy Corbyn is not anti-Semitic? Of course he is. That's terrible. And from the other side saying, how dare you say Jeremy Corbyn has said anti-Semitic things? He never has. And, you know, the people who in the middle who try and find that that balance find it very hard. But I was listening to President Obama, former President Obama, around the start of the conflict and saying that in the Middle East in particular, you have to say things which upset one side and upset the other side. You have to say, if you're a statesperson, that you must understand the historic right of the Jewish people to have a Jewish state and their fear that that will be taken away from them. If you don't understand that, you can't understand Israel. And you also have to understand the suffering of the people of Palestine and their their right to have a, a homeland. And the trouble is, if you say those two things to lots of audiences these days, you get condemned either from one side or the other. But there is no way forward on this unless you start from both propositions. That's what the two-state solution is about. The problem at the moment is that um, the Israeli ambassador in London is rejecting a two-state solution. And you had last week in uh, Parliament, Deir Ali, the Labour MP, telling Rishi Sunak he has blood on his hands because of trying to find that way through the middle. Every time a protester on the Palestinian side talks about from the river to the sea and are denying the right of Israel to exist, they're also entrenching on on one side of the argument. And finding a way through, which is, you know, just like the biggest diplomatic challenge of our of our time, I mean it requires you to move away from the polarization which Phoebe rightly worries about because nuance and consensus is the only way forward, but it's a nightmare to find it. Yeah, and which is why the conflict continues. And here's our final question from Claire. After watching the Speaker criticise Rishi Sunak last week for showing a prop in Parliament, I was firstly wondering, are there any other rules like this and are there any sort of really, really weird ones? Following on from that, I just wondered, why can't he do that? As in, like, from my point of view, it was just a piece of paper that he held up. Thank you, and keep up the fantastic work. Yes, so the speaker ticked off Rishi Sunak because he held up a book that Keir Starmer had written, I think it was, on human rights and one of the Tory attacks at the moment. I have to say, it's not really landing, is that Keir Starmer's a human rights lawyer and, you know, defended a load of people who, uh, you know, aren't the pleasantest people in the world. Anyway, the, Claire's question is about the rules of the House of Commons. You're not allowed to use props. You're not allowed to hold up objects or items, including books. I remember John McDonnell, who was my opposite number, Shadow Chancellor, for a period when I was Chancellor. He held up a copy of Mao's Little Red Book and uh, said I should be reading it. This was you know, instructive that I wasn't taking lessons from Chairman Mao and threw it across the dispatch box at me. To assist Comrade Osborne in his dealings with his newfound comrades... I brought him along Mao's little red book. <laughs> we must learn to do economic work from all who know how, no matter who they are. We must esteem them as teachers, learning from them respectfully and conscientiously. But we must not to pretend to know what we do not know. I thought it would come in handy for him in his new relationship. I think he meant it as a kind of joke or an admonition. I have to say it massively backfired on him because everyone thought he was quoting Mao in that, which was sort of rather true to character for a, for a Corbynista. Anyway, it's one of my, I've, I've got the little red book. I'm very thankful to John for giving it to this me. This is the John McDonnell who, unlike me, was invited to Davos by the global capitalist elite. Well, he understands. While the- throwing Mao's red book across the chamber. 
Well, the struggle takes many forms, Ed, as you know. <laughs> I do, but the, the question was, are there other rules as well as that one? And there are lots of, um, Funny kind rules, of different right? rules, and some of them are good. So one rule is you are not allowed to address anybody directly. You can't say you. You can't direct. If I was mm. Shadow Chancellor, I can't say, you have got this wrong, Chancellor. Everything has to be addressed through the speaker. Yeah, so the speaker to, would jump up saying, I haven't got anything wrong, He would, Mr. Bowles. So you have to say, Mr. Speaker, the Chancellor has got this yeah. wrong. And to avoid things being just confrontational and terribly antagonistic, everything is addressed through the chair. That's a good rule. It's mm. quite hard to learn, mm. but it does mean that it doesn't become just a nasty shouting match. Also, you're not allowed to name people. You always have to refer to their constituency. That is a bit more complicated because I think for people watching Parliament... Rather than saying John Redwood, you have to say the, the right honourable member for Morley and Outwood, or whatever it is, and that right honourable means you're in the Privy Council. Honourable means you're not. And if you don't say it that way, and you said somebody's name, you'd be called up by the Speaker. But that makes it sort of harder, I think, for people to, to follow. And then there's certain words you can't use. You definitely can't call somebody a liar. There's certain swear words you can't uh, use. Kind of ironic, though, that always shifts with fashion. So because of the Home Secretary um, being supposedly overheard calling the Rwanda policy uh, batshit, it has now become acceptable to use that word in the House of Commons. In fact, the Shadow Home Secretary has used the word mm. batshit. In my time, you couldn't use that word because that would have been... The Shadow Home Secretary. The Shadow Home Secretary has used it in, you're, you're, in Parliament. You're married to the Shadow I am, Home Secretary. I know. I'm just, I know that declare, was, that declare was, an interest. That, that's that another was, thing you have to do in the House of Commons. That, that was the irony. <laughs> I was saying the Shadow Home Secretary, Yvette Cooper, who until I'm married, has used this word. I, though, was on Good Morning Britain and tried to refer to the Home Secretary referring to the policy as batshit and then was told I wasn't allowed to because this was not in accordance with Ofcom guidelines. So you can't say it on television, but you can now say it in Parliament. So it's always evolving and fluid. The one thing you can't do is throw books at people. I mean, at least not literally. I'll tell you, one, you can throw the book at somebody figuratively, but not literally. I'll tell you one thing you could do, but it's only when I was LMP, which is you can go and ask the doorkeeper for some snuff, you know, like tobacco snuff that you sniff, and they produce this little silver box and uh, this was, I guess, in the 18th, 19th century to keep people awake or whatever it was in those debates. So you, you, there are things you can snort in the uh, chamber. Well, I, I mean... I would recommend... I don't know whether they still got the snuff, but if any MP is listening to this one, they go and ask and they could send us a note in next week and tell us whether it's true or not. So you're saying that while plotting against Ian Duncan Smith in the House of Commons, you, David Cameron and Boris Johnson sitting around plotting, one of you says, have you got anything to snort? The, the answer is, go and check with the doorkeeper and get some snuff. And all completely legal. Did that ever happen? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but I did I did try the snuff. Usually once or twice. I, t- I tried it once or twice when I was showing people around the House of Commons. You did not. And that's you have, it. I you said, tried snuff in the House of Commons? Yes, of course. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm surprised you haven't. Look, on that, you're on always the... game for things, Ed. You come on. You're like, you're, you would definitely be up for it. Snuff? No. Especially not in the House of Commons, but anywhere. I think I have definitely... Look, on, on, you on draw the, on the line. Look, it's one thing to drop the marmalade. It's another thing to take the snuff. That is all for today's episode. We'll be back this Thursday talking about the big economic and political stories of the week. That's right. Please keep sending us your voice notes and your questions via questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. 
And of course, make sure you hit follow on your podcast apps so that you get our latest episode directly onto your phone. And send us a review, either by email or better, put it on the Apple or Spotify. Well, if it's, or your if, if it's a good review. Like if it's a good review. Yeah. No, I think if Francesca wants to do a review, we'd love it. Reviews from California, most welcome. And, you know, if John wants to say, you know, gorgeous George, I love him. Who's stopping him? Who is stopping him? See you Thursday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.